Today I want to share some um, thoughts from Scripture about the timely messages from heaven. Crucial turning points throughout history, affecting both our earthly and heavenly salvation, uh, divine commands that come from God, which are not optional. And to hesitate means to lose out. Mercy with an expiration date. Obey and live or disobey and die. And we start, so I'll be sharing a number of texts today, uh, but uh, many of them you probably are, uh, are very well acquainted with. Um, back in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 6, God comes to Noah and um, he says, make, that's uh, chapter 6, uh, verse 14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. So he got the command to, to make an art, to make this giant boat. And I know, I guess a few of you have seen the, the replica they had back east, which is this amazing ship. It, it was, uh, um, and certainly, uh, I'm sure the largest ship that had ever been built for centuries uh, was there under God's direction. And Second uh, Peter Two five refers to Noah as the preacher of righteousness. So not only was he a builder, but he was a preacher. And during that 120 years when he was building, um, he was he was calling the people to repentance, telling them that destruction was coming, uh, a world that would be destroyed by flood by water, and um, that there would be a way of salvation if they would accept it. And um, finally, in, in chapter 7, verse 1, the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, all you and your household, because I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. But just before that, Noah made that final call for the people to come. All they had to do was walk up the gangplank. That's all they had to do. They didn't even have to believe in God. All they had to do was walk up the gangplank. But they did not. The question arises, why were they not? Why did they not bother? Well, there's probably a thousand different reasons, but um, certainly peer pressure. Noah was considered a lunatic, crazy. After all, it never rained. So how could there be a flood if it never rained? And so the religious leaders of the day, the government leaders of the day, everybody said, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. It's not possible, can't happen. Um, and, and so just, you know, continue on life. And don't worry about this this crazy man and his family. But I suspect that Noah's ark building was probably became the world's first amusement park because people came to see this strange sight. What in the world's going on here? They couldn't even imagine, you know. And um, but in the end, even those that perhaps might have been persuaded by the sincerity of his preaching and his calling were finally turned back by others because they didn't want to face ridicule. And ridicule is one of the hardest things for human beings to face. Um, very, very difficult indeed. But it says there in verse uh, 2 of Second Peter, 
verse 5 of chapter 2. He, God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. So there came a time when God made a final call, and it was life or death. And Genesis 19 is the story of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, in which God warned um, Abraham what he was going to do, and then he warned Lot to, to, to leave with his family. Um, and of course, I am sure the city <laughs> heard about this strange commotion, uh, but they did not believe. And uh, so in fact, the angels took Lot by the hand, literally, and, and, and took him out of the city with his immediate family. The rest of his family was left behind. Um, and the instructions were, escape for your life, and do not look behind or stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. They were not even to look back, not even to have a regret about the fact that what they were leaving behind and probably undoubtedly a very beautiful, beautiful home uh, because they were only called to be thankful for the fact that God was offering uh, to rescue them, offering salvation. We'll move into Exodus and um, Exodus 12, and this is the time of the, the Passover, the institution of the Passover. And the seventh, I'm sorry, tenth plague is about to happen. Would be the firstborn of of all of Egypt would die unless they chose to follow God's instructions. Um, and then the people were to leave immediately that night for for the promised land. And um, in Exodus 12, verse 7, it said, God's instructions shall take some of the blood, put it on the two doorposts, and on the lintel of the houses. Uh, and they were to also eat the Passover lamb that evening. And so they had very, very clear instruction that this Passover night was the night, the big night, the biggest night in their whole lives and for the whole nation of, of the Israelites. I suppose some people may have wondered, well, why do we have to do it on the two doorposts? Why can't we do it somewhere else? Why can't we do it on the steps? Why can't we do it somewhere else? Thankfully, they chose to believe and do exactly what God asked them to do. And we understand because there was this mixed multitude, the Bible calls them, there was Egyptians who went out with them. Some of the Egyptians actually decided that things weren't going very well in Egypt. It was time to leave. And so even though they may have not even believed in God particularly, but they could see his power. And so they too put the blood on the doorposts chose to accept God's command and were able to escape destruction. Not long after, as, as, as the children of Israel came up to the borders of the Promised Land, and that's recorded in Numbers 13, um, they were, of course, had, had the 12 spies. The 12 spies went into the land to bring back a report. And remember that... Um, they were still amazed by what they saw. It was a lush country. Uh, they very productive. And they came back, and apparently one cluster of grapes was so gigantic that it took two men to carry it. Um, 
But 10 of the 12 spies said, ah, I know it looks good, but this is giants, giants in the land. We saw their walled cities. Can't do it, can't do it. Of course, forgetting all that God had already done for them. And, um, and so they said, there's no way that we can, we can take the promised land, no way that we can survive if we go there. And, of course, Caleb and Joshua said, wait a minute, God has been with us. He, he's more than able to bring us to the promised land. And the people got so angry by the fear that had been built up by the false reports of the ten um, spies that they actually were ready to stone Caleb and Joshua. And so God intervened, and he said, okay, if you refuse as a nation to go where I've called you and opened the door for you to go, then you will stay, and you'll stay in the desert for 40 years. And anybody above 20 years old is going to die there. Um, So again, a point in biblical history where timing was everything. That if they move forward in faith, um, actually their conquering of 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 the promised land of Canaan would have been much easier than it was later. But they chose not to believe. They chose fear rather than faith. And uh, indeed, they, they spent a long time in the wilderness. But thankfully, as God promised, both Caleb and Joshua would see the promised land. And um, in fact, Caleb was a man of such tremendous faith that uh, he had asked for a certain mountain that he wanted to be as his possession. And apparently it was still occupied by the enemy. But he didn't bother. He says, give me that mountain. Give me that mountain. And he went up and took it. And by that time, he was a very old man. Um, it's the difference between faith and fear. Story of, of Jonah in the book of Jonah. When um, Jonah was sent, and of course he took an unfortunate detour um, and spent some time in a whale, um, but when he finally realized that God meant what he said to go preach to Nineveh, uh, he went and announced that in 40 days God was going to destroy the place. And again, a message of time. And this time the people repented, they believed, and said the king all the way down to the, to the least of them uh, repented. And um, the king had said that... Uh, he said, let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, cry mightily to God, that every one turn from his evil way and the violence that's in his hand. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? It's interesting that this king understood that God's uh, prophecies and predictions and judgments are often uh, conditional. And, um, and so, of course, they repented, and God then said, okay, I, I will not destroy the city. Um, of course, you remember Jonah <laughs> didn't understand that. And so he kind of got upset. He thought they should be destroyed. But uh, God said, no, they repented. And this would tell us, in terms of the concept of conditional prophecies, that had the people before the flood, the Andalusian world, 
repented, God would have canceled the flood. I truly believe God would have canceled the flood if they'd repented. Uh, but they didn't. And um, in the New Testament, uh, another parable is told about the, the, the foolish and the wise and foolish virgins. And uh, there's a call that goes out at midnight that the bridegroom is coming. You remember that some of them had extra oil in their lamps and some didn't. Um, in fact, it was half and half. Um, and then when the call came, they said they all slumbered and slept, and then the call came, they got up, and half of them found out their lights had gone out. Uh, they didn't have enough oil, symbolic of the Holy Spirit. So they went out to look for it somewhere. When they came back, the door was shut. It was too late. Too late. Too late. Because it says in verse uh, 11 there of Matthew 25, uh, they came back and said, open up, to, open up to us. Lord, Lord, open. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Others that were called and followed and accepted the call. Um, you remember when um, Philip got to meet Jesus and he went and told his brother Nathaniel, and that's um, in the first chapter of John. Uh, and Nathaniel's response was, could any good thing come out of, out of Nazareth? Apparently Nazareth didn't have a really good reputation. Um, and Philip didn't argue with him. He just said, come and see. And the good news is that Nathaniel went and saw uh, and, of course, became one of, of Jesus' disciples. He accepted the call. Then um, a little later, uh, Jesus warned the disciples in, in uh, Matthew 24, and it was also recorded uh, in the other Gospels as well, that there would come a time when Jerusalem would be destroyed. And they were given specific information. It says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Those who are on the housetop not go down to take anything out of the house. Let him who is in the field not go back. And uh, so pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. And apparently there was an area around Jerusalem, a certain distance out, which was considered still holy ground, still part of Jerusalem. And the early Christians understood from Jesus' words that when they would see the Roman armies plant their standards, uh, their military standards, the military flags, in the sacred area just outside of Jerusalem, that would be the time to leave. And um, in the Book of Controversy, which gives the history of the Christian church, uh, it talks about the fact that there came a moment when the Roman armies had surrounded, but then they suddenly pulled back for no particular reason. Uh, they just pulled back, and um, a way was opened. And the Christians saw that that was God's providential leading, that the army had pulled back. Had the Jewish army from the inside went out to try to, to battle with them, and in the meantime, they were free to go. It was a very, very brief moment, but they went, and uh, thankfully not one 
Christian perished. They were all able to escape. Um, in that uh, story of the destruction of Jerusalem and what proceeded just before it, and the siege that took place, it's an amazing story, um, worth rereading uh, in great controversy. Um, and uh, as has happened in past with great sieges, when the hunger was so tremendous, the lack of food, everything was in chaos, and it was like it was like the French Revolution in miniature, uh, chaos, murder, everything terrible going on, um, children slaughtering the parents, the parents' children, I mean, just all these factions fighting. Hatred was was full bore, one hundred percent in view, and we are told that that's just a picture, a little picture of what will happen at the very end of time. And I personally believe, especially uh, as as Christ said even at the beginning, God said in uh, concerning the flood, my my spirit shall not always strive with men. There came a time when the spirit withdrew. And at the very end of time, God's spirit will be withdrawn from the wicked, those who've rejected God's word, God's law, his love, and they will be under the full control of the enemy. And this will be uh, chaos on an unimaginable scale. Um, this is mentioned in, in, in uh, the book of Daniel, chapter 12, verse 1. It says that time Michael shall stand up, is referring to Christ, the great prince which stands watch over the sons of your people. And there should be a time of trouble such as there never was since there was a nation. And again in Revelation 18, uh, speaking about the, the chaos at the end of time, and particularly in the spiritual world, but in, in every aspect of the world. And it said, I saw, chapter 18, verse 1, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory, and he cried mightily with a loud voice, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, uh, has become the dwelling place of demons a prison for every foul spirit, a cage for every unclean and hated bird, describing the, the religious world, literally describing the entire world of total confusion. Um, and in verse 4, that same chapter, said, I heard another voice saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and receive of her plagues. Beverly's going to share a, a modern story. Uh, about what it means to get out now. I heard this story recently. I knew I wanted to share it with you, and today seemed like the perfect time. Rick Rescorla might be the greatest American hero you've never heard of. His story begins across the Atlantic Ocean in England, for Rick was British. Riscorla was born in Hale, a seaport on the north coast of Cornwall, and Cornwall is the very southern tip down there of England. As a teen, Rick wanted to see the world and some action. He joined the British paratroopers, 
then became an intelligence officer in Cyprus. He served in Africa as a commando and last in Scotland Yard as a detective. But all the paperwork bothered him. Rick was looking for a fight. So in 1963, he reported for basic training at Fort Dix, New Jersey, a mercenary at age 24. He emerged as a swaggering leader, belting out Cornish, or from Cornwall, Cornish songs in his lusty baritone when his classmates were stressed out and exhausted. After graduating as a second lieutenant in April 1965, Rick was assigned to lead a platoon, the same company and battalion that was previously General Custer's outfit at Little Bighorn, and by fall, he was in Vietnam. What a command presence, recalled an Army buddy. We all thought we were going to die one night, but Rescorla gave us our courage back. I figured if he can walk around singing, the least I can do is stop trembling. Rescorla served one tour in Vietnam, earning a silver star, a purple heart, bronze stars for valor and meritorious service, and the Vietnamese Cross of Gallantry in addition to his $241 a month salary. That's all they got back then. And his story is in that book. In 1968, though, he finished his Army tour, got his U.S. citizenship, and set off for the University of Oklahoma with the GI Bill, where he earned both a bachelor's and master's degree in, of all things, literature. (laughs) I thought that was unique. And then he went to law school. He taught criminal justice for three years, and then he joined the corporate security world. In 1985, he moved to New Jersey to be the director of security for the Wall Street firm Morgan Stanley, who leased 22 floors of office space in the World Trade Center Building No. 2, which is the South Tower. During the Gulf War, Rescorla concluded that the main threat at the World Trade Center could be an underground truck bomb since their underground garage parking area was not secured. It was their soft spot, their weak link. He spoke to the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey and explained his warnings. They said, that's none of your business. They told him to be concerned with the security of the 22 floors that they leased from them and leave the rest to them. Well, in 1993, a terrorist with a van and a bomb blew up, blew a three-story hole in that very garage and created pandemonium. After that bombing, Rescorla specifically warned the Port Authority and Morgan Stanley that the next attack would be by air. He expected a cargo plane, possibly loaded with chemical or biological weapons. And again, he was ignored. But some of his Morgan Stanley superiors asked, what can be done to prevent such an attack? He replied, nothing. Get out of this building. We are nothing but a big, soft target. They intend to hit us again. Move across the river. Go to New Jersey. Build, buy, or rent a group of low-rise buildings. Spread out into smaller targets. In this computer age, We could do our business from the middle of North Dakota. We don't need Wall Street anymore. 
but nothing was done. However, Rick went into action. He had a disaster plan, and he appointed team leaders and fire marshals for all 22 floors, and they were in various floors from floor 43 to 74. They underwent extra training. Their jobs were to make sure that the different floors would follow his comprehensive evacuation plan, and every visitor to Morgan Stanley received a proper safety briefing before they could begin work. When Rescorla's practice drills came every few months, everything stopped. Every last person in the company knew evacuation routes, the time limits, and contingency plans, and they practiced them. Although Morgan Stanley traded hundreds of millions of dollars a day through its World Center trade office, every employee had to participate in those evacuation drills. Some folks found it extremely annoying. They wanted to skip these interruptions and keep working, but he would not allow it. He even called his guards at night to make sure they were at their posts. He wanted his plan burned into their DNA. Many people griped, but Riscorla would simply smile and respond with his seven P's. Proper prior planning and preparation prevents poor performance. Rick was the right man in the right place at the right time. The first plane hit tower number one at 8.46 a.m. on September 11, 2001. But the Morgan Stanley offices were in tower two. But the office workers felt the explosion and they saw the damage. Shortly after the impact, the Port Authority, who owned the buildings, came across the intercom system with this. The order for everyone in both towers was... Stay put and do not leave the building. The area is secure. Secure? Rescorla could not believe his ears. He ignored those orders. I'm getting my people out of here. Within one minute, he took action and worked his plan. He ordered his security staff, floor leaders, and fire marshals to evacuate everyone immediately. He picked up his walkie-talkie and his bullhorn, and he commanded the operation, floor by floor. The Morgan Stanley evacuation plan went into full effect, and the people responded the moment that the order came down. They had been drilled to do exactly that. They went down the stairs, two by two, all 22 floors of, it, of employees. Seventeen minutes later, at 9.03, the second plane hit their tower, tower number two, and the jolt knocked people off their feet. The power went out. Many sustained injuries, and the stress on everyone jumped from high to extreme. But the evacuation continued according to the plan. Riscorla knew everyone in the building was in very serious trouble. His people were performing well, but they needed help to maintain their focus. He picked up his bullhorn and he began singing songs from his youth, the same ones he sang to his men back in Vietnam. The songs worked just as well in the World Trade Center stairwells as they had during the war. By around 945, 
the evacuation of Morgan Stanley's offices was nearly complete. That's almost 3,000 employees walking down stairwells. They walked down some from as high as the 74th floor and the lower ones from the 43rd floor. All those stairwells down to the street level and safely out of the building. But at the bottom, Rescorla turned around and headed back up. A handful of people were unaccounted for. Everyone knew Rescorla would not come out until every last person had been rescued. A soldier to the end, he would never leave anyone behind, even if it meant sacrificing his own life. Rick Rescorla, American hero, was last seen in the 10th floor stairwell, heading higher. Not long after that, at 9.59, Tower 2 collapsed. Thirteen Morgan Stanley employees died on 9-11. This includes Rescorla and four of his security team. But the remaining 2,687 employees plus 250 office visitors all survived. That's a total of 2,937. It's close to 3,000 people who lived because Rick Rescorla ignored the ignorant peace and safety orders to stay put. They survived because he had a plan. He lived his soldier training, which is still good advice for us today. I will always place the mission first. I will never accept defeat. I will never quit. I will never leave a fallen comrade. Uh, those are good, good um, things for us today as Christians. And I hope you gleaned some spiritual parallels from this. I know I saw many. We are also soldiers of the cross fighting in Jesus' army. He sacrificed his life for us. He promised never to leave us. And if we're rightly trained and available for his service daily through prayer, we can be the right people at the right location at the right time to be used by him. We need to listen to him and seek his guidance for situations so that we can respond immediately with no hesitation. And our actions might help save many. And we need to keep singing while we work. Indeed, the call comes throughout Scripture and at the very end of time, come out of her, my people. God is calling. And there will come a time when God will finally say, is that your final answer? Let him who is holy be holy still. Let him who is filthy be filthy still. Let him who is righteous be righteous still. Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. A sad truth, inconvenient truth, is that most people will be lost, not because there wasn't a plan of salvation or not because they couldn't have been saved, but because they did not heed the call. In fact, Jesus said one time, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. He was talking to the church of his day. But he said, but he who does the will of my Father 
in heaven. In Eastern religions, time is circular, called it the circle of life, reincarnation. You know, if you, if you uh, did more bad things than good things in this life, then they think, well, maybe you could come back as a, as a grasshopper. And if you're a really good grasshopper, maybe you could come back the next time as a butterfly or a songbird and work your way back up. But the Bible says that time is linear. It's a straight line moving from the creation of the world to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Um, And it continues to move forward. Migrating birds and butterflies have built-in time clocks. They're still trying to figure out how those work uh, and how they know how to get where they're going. But they know when it's time to go. They know when it's time to leave to answer the call uh, of nature that God has built into them. God has given us a prophetic time clock in the Bible, uh, Daniel and Revelation especially. And according to that, we are at the time of the end. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Um, We never know what we're going to have. Yesterday's gone. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. Uh, We all in this world face death. Uh, Certainly for anybody who's awake should realize, even if they're an evolutionist, there's something wrong with this planet because there are graveyards everywhere. Something really wrong with this planet. I want to share for just a moment about a tombstone error. Um, Back in 2009, after I lost my first wife, uh, I was was working online with designing the the words that would be put on her tombstone. And... uh, uh, so I was working back and forth with the with the monument company, and um, uh, her her side of it, not my side, was going to be on the other. Her side was straightforward in 1946 to to uh, 2009. Uh, and as I was, you know, putting in the script, of course, on my side I wrote 1943 dash. Well, then they sent me back a proof to make sure it was okay. And I thought, I looked at it and said, wow. On my side, it said, Bernard Adams, 1943-10,000. I thought, wow, this is amazing. (laughs) uh, Talk about fake news. Uh, So I I asked them, are you sure that's, you know, I'd I'd like to leave that open. You know, I'm thankful for your confidence, but... um, the, the reality is that tomorrow is not guaranteed. Only the love of Christ, only the offer of salvation, that we, day by day, have the privilege of walking with him, as we talked about in Sabbath school, not only with, but having Jesus in our hearts and lives, and following him and answering the call, and being willing, no matter what, to be fully committed to our Savior. Because anything less than that will not do Isaiah 55, verse 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. The whole Bible is really a message of hope, but it's also involving time, because our time down here is limited. And so God is calling us to say, 
Seek me while he may be found. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And that is our privilege. And as it says in the New Testament, we are called to not neglect the great salvation that God has offered. Because many will. Many will say, no thanks. They put it off. I think one of the great deceptions and delusions of the, of the devil is that, oh yeah, yeah, you, you probably should get everything right with the Lord someday, but not now. Don't, no rush, not now. Um, that's one of the most dangerous concepts because we don't know how much time we have, but we have the privilege of moment by moment and day by day choosing Jesus, choosing life, for he is the way, the truth, and the life. And as the Apostle John says so beautifully, he that has the Son has life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great time clock of the Bible pointing us forward to your second coming. Lord, by your grace and mercy and in your strength, we choose to follow Jesus. We choose to walk with him. We choose to be ready. And we praise you and will praise you throughout all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.